thank you for taking the time to listen to this life-changing message from the ministry of Faith Bible Chapel. We hope this message will encourage you in all parts of your life. At the end of this message, you will hear more information on how to contact our church family, as well as directions for you to visit us for any of our worship services. Until then, join us for the service in progress. We're continuing with this series as we're talking about. And the book of James was written by the bold little half-brother of Jesus. And the reason why I say half-brother is because Mary was Jesus' mother, but his father was Father God. He was, it was, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. James came later after the birth of Jesus. Mary and Joseph had children after that, and so they were half-brothers. I know it's kind of weird when you, when you say that. It just kind of, that just sounds weird, but that's, that's just reality. And so James became a believer in Jesus Christ after the resurrection of Jesus. He did not believe that his brother was the son of God when Jesus, before Jesus died on the cross. He didn't believe it. Matter of fact, some of the family at times ridiculed Jesus. But after the resurrection of Jesus, James said, I'm going to give my life to Jesus. He gave his life, so, he actually literally gave his life for the cause of the gospel. James was the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. He was kind of the leader where, when they had to, had to resolve disputes or deal with some theological issues, they would usually come to Jerusalem. James led the council in Jerusalem. He led the church in Jerusalem. And James would preach the gospel all the time about his brother. But he couldn't call him his brother. He called him the Lord Jesus Christ. And he would preach, and he loved Jesus so much, and he gave his life for Jesus. One day he was preaching at the temple. They became angry with him because they didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah. James proved to them scripturally he was the Messiah. They took him to the top of the wall, and they threw him off, and he gave his life. This man believed in what he wrote. And so as we're reading these scriptures today, I want you to hear. These are coming from a place from a man who gave his life for Jesus Christ. He's not messing around. He's not playing games. He's not playing Christian. He, does, he's, he just didn't come to, to church on, on Sunday and live how he wants the rest of the week. He's given his life to be a follower of Jesus. And he's encouraging you and I to do the same as well. So everybody say, I'm ready. All right. Because my desire really is that as we get into this, just this chapter today out of chapter 4, that you would leave with a passion and a decision to have a personal renewal in Jesus Christ, a personal awakening in your heart, a personal revival. It's great. You, you know, you always, everybody always wants revival. Boy, I just want revival. I want revival to break out. I hear people talk about our church all the time. I just, man, I believe we need a revival. I do too, but it starts with you. It starts with me. And we want it always to happen out here. But God today is saying, I want it to happen in here in your heart. Because Jesus purchased for us a life that is amazing. It's powerful. It's, it's full of love. It's full of, full of freedom. It's full of victory. No Christian wants to live a defeated Christian life. If I was to ask yourself, ask all of us, say, how many here would love to live a, a defeated Christian life? Nobody would raise their hand. But here's the reality. Many of us do. And James is dealing with this issue of a defeated Christian life. 
And when we get into this, I'm going to contrast two areas. I'm going to contrast the problem, and I'm going to contrast the solution. So what is the problem? What what is the diagnosis? How can you tell you're living a a defeated Christian life? James is going to show us. After he shows us, he also shows us what the solution to the the defeated Christian life is. So let's begin in James chapter 4, reading verses 1 through 3. James says this. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desire, that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have. Say, do not have. So you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want. So you quarrel and you fight. You do not have because you do not ask. Say, do not ask. You do not ask, God. And when you ask, you do not receive. Say, do not receive. Because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your own pleasure. So James is talking about a problem that exists in the church. People are arguing. People are fighting. You know, every book outside of the, the four Gospels was written to another church or written to a group of people, and it was addressing some kind of problem. If I was to ask you today, have you ever been in a church that was... People were fighting, they were arguing, they were quarreling. And if James is addressing this issue in, in the church back then, it's, we can guarantee that this kind of stuff happens today in churches and maybe is even happening in our church. I would like to believe it's not, but the reality is we're all human, we're all broken, and that's just the way it is. And if quarreling is happening in the church, you can guarantee it's happening in the families. I won't ask you to raise your hand, but I wonder if if there was any fighting before church this morning. Seems to happen on Sunday mornings a lot, doesn't it? I wonder if there's any quarreling. I wonder if you walked in the building, if, if if you saw three things you didn't like and were frustrated about, or you saw three things that you liked and were glad that you had it. There's a difference. How you respond to different things. There was there was bad attitudes going on in the church. And, but here's the deal. The fighting and the bad attitude isn't the issue. The issue is that, the fighting and the quarreling, it's a symptom of the heart. But the deal is, <clears throat> is there's a problem with the heart. I want you to look at the beginning of verse 1. It says, speaking of arguing and quarreling, it says this, Don't they come from your desires that battle within you, in here? This is the issue. The reason that we have battles out here and with one another and, and, and within your family and within relationships around you or at work, or the, the issue is not out here. The issue is where? It's in here. It's in our hearts. So what do you think would happen to Faith Bible Chapel if everyone who battled on the inside actually recognized I battle on the inside? That we're honest enough to say, you know what, Um, I need Jesus every day in my life. To say, I'm broken and and there, there is pain in my life that I need God to change and to heal me. What would happen? What how would our church change? I bet there'd be a lot less of of talk going on behind people's backs or things happening in different areas. If we really said, God, I need you. What would happen in the terms of world missions? What would happen in terms of evangelism that we would walk out our purpose on the earth? In the term of church planting, we begin to 
identify places in our own city that needs churches because the community is desperate for one? What would happen in terms of our impact here and our witness here that when we say Jesus is who he said he is, people believe it because our lives demonstrate his power through us and in us? I want to share with you three marks of a defeated Christian that James lays out. Now, it's important before we get to, to the solution that sometimes you, you got to see on the dark backdrop of what is wrong. So we're going to look at what is wrong and what James is dealing with. The first one is the problem. And James says this. He says, you do not have. That's the first mark of a, of a defeated Christian. You do not have. James 4.2 says this. You do not have. And he's speaking of Christian poverty. And these are folks who are not walking in, they're not living in the spiritual blessings of Jesus Christ. And I'm not talking about a bank balance. I'm not talking about what what year your car is. I'm not talking about what neighborhood you live in. I'm talking about this blessing that God gives us, wholeness from the inside out. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says this, For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich... Yet for your sake, look at this, for your sake, your sake, he became poor. So that you, through his poverty, might become what? Rich. This is beautiful. This picture of who Jesus is. He was rich. He became poor. From his poverty, we became rich. It's called the divine exchange. It's what happened. And this is not referring to financial riches. It's referring to spiritual, soul, heart, and mind riches. I'm telling you what, I've seen a lot of rich people that God has, God has somehow blessed them and they have wealth, but their life is a mess. I would rather have internal riches of joy and peace and freedom and life than, than, than drive a 2017 car to have money in my bank. That means nothing if you are torn up and broken on the inside. And James is dealing with, he wants people to have spiritual blessing. He wants people to have peace. He's talking to people who are fighting and nasty and bitter from the inside out. There's a proverb that speaks about, that, that I believe it was Solomon who was writing this particular proverb, said that I would rather eat the crumbs of a table than sit at the table of a quarreling group of people. James is talking about people that do not have. There may be folks here today that maybe this describes you. People that do not have or people that everything bothers them. Everything offends you maybe. Everything bugs you. Any little shift or change, your your heart just erupts and it's it's like someone bumping an infected boil and it just, it just, reacts. And you think because there are feelings that you have that you think that you need to share those feelings with everyone else around you. I want you to ask yourself this. The emotions and the thoughts and the feelings you have on the inside of you, does it reflect the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ? If it doesn't, then you are not walking in the riches that Christ has for you. Now, it doesn't mean it's, it's, it's not a battle. Of course, it's hard to keep your emotions in check and your mind in check because the enemy is out to get you. 
But let me ask you a question. Do you have the power to forgive unforgivable people? Do you have the power to love unlovable people? Do you have peace that surpasses the understanding of man? Or is your peace linked to something material on this earth? Is it linked to the acceptance of people or linked to the security of the world? Or maybe you struggle and you're worried all the time. You're in fear all the time. I promise you this, my friends. If that's you today, God has a solution for you. God wants you to walk in his peace. He wants you to walk in his joy. He wants you to walk in, in, your, in the victory that when he says that you are more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. There are things in our lives that instead of us conquering them, they're conquering us. I could guarantee we could take a poll this morning. Each of us would say, yeah, you know what, Jason, there are things in my life that, that I, I just can't seem to get a leg up on. Maybe it's an attitude that just seems to just keep coming up. Maybe, maybe you have a problem with your language, lifestyle, little things in your life you know that shouldn't be there. Things that, that, you, that you can't say, I'm beating it, but really it's beating you. And maybe you are living, this is one of the symptoms in your life of the don't have lifestyle. Maybe you don't have power, you don't have peace, you don't have joy. Let me ask you this, are you more than a conqueror? I promise you the message gets better. I'm just laying out the backdrop. Second mark of a defeated Christian is you do not ask. And James says this in James 4, 2, you do not have because you do not ask God. This is describing, really, I believe, a Christian that doesn't pray. Anytime there's a problem in our lives, we immediately begin to look around to try to find others to blame. Now listen, James is not pulling any punches here. James has got a hundred, around a hundred verses that he writes to the church. He, it's like he, con he boils them on the stove for a while and concentrates them down to fewer words, which I'm sure some of you wish I did more often. And he's not, he's not messing around because he loves the church. Because he's had to process through these very same things in his own life. That there, were, there was attitudes of his own heart towards his brother Jesus when Jesus walked the earth that he had to come to grips with and deal with. There were things he had, to, he had to see in other churches, and he was writing them and telling them, you don't have because you don't ask. Because, and what this means is you're not praying. Anytime there's a problem in our lives, we immediately begin to find other solutions or other things to blame Really, in this context, the reason we're struggling is because we're not asking God to help us. It's kind of like, I'm so thankful that God is not like parents on a, on a road trip. Have you ever been on, on a road trip, whether as a kid or, or, or now you have kids now, your parents, and, and the kids just keep asking, are we there yet? I got to go to the bathroom. Johnny just went to the bathroom. I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. What's that? How do, you, how do you spell hippopotamus? When are we going to eat? <laughs> road trips. You guys have been on road trips before with kids. How many are glad? At, at some point as a parent, you're like this. If you ask one more time, you're hitchhiking, buddy. 
We'll get there when we get there. Don't ask again. How many are thankful that God is, is not like us parents on those long trips? <laughs> Matter of fact, it's the opposite. He says this in Matthew 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. He's like, keep asking me. I want to be involved in your life. I want to hear you keep asking. When are we going to get there? When are we going to get there? When are we going to get there? And when you stop, he says, I wish you'd ask some more. How are we going to eat? What are we going to do? And, and when we stop, he says, come on, keep asking me. I love this. A defeated Christian has a poor prayer life. My question to you is, what type of prayer life do you have? I would say the failure of most individuals is not because the temptation was too great. I would say it was because the prayer life was too small. A praying person will stop sinning, and a sinning person will stop praying. I'm going to say that again just so you can get it. A praying person will stop sinning, and a sinning person will stop praying. You want these things in our lives. We want these things in our lives. If we want joy and peace and life, then James is saying you don't have them because you're not asking for them. You're not in a prayer life asking God to be involved in your life. And the success of of this church or your family or your life, or us together, will, be, will not be realized until we first seek God for us. Until we first ask God. Until we first engage with God. You want your, if you're a parent and you want your children to succeed, how are you praying for them to succeed? If you want your marriage to succeed, couples, how are you gathering and praying for your marriage? Do you want this? You want to be a part of a church that's full of life, full of power, full of the, the, the presence of God impacting the world? Let me just ask you how are you praying or are you praying for your church community? It's really about praying. This is how we're going to find success. In Exodus 17, we actually find this very same example. The Israelites come to a place where they were on their way to. The promised land that God had promised them. The Amalekites were saying, in order for you to get to what God's promised to you, you got to go through us. So Moses and Joshua are talking, and, 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 and Moses says this, Joshua, you go down, you fight them. You take an army down there. And Joshua says, where are you going to be, Moses? He says, well, um, I'm going to go up on that mountain and watch you. Okay. Jo- Joshua had to be thinking, well, aren't you going to come help? But Joshua goes down and he begins to fight. Moses goes up and he begins to pray for the children of Israel. And when he lifts his hands and he prays for them, Israel starts advancing against the Amalekites. When he lowers his hands and isn't praying, the Amalekites start advancing against the Israelites. Well, they recognize, hey, this is super, super important. What's going on here? And here's here's the principle in this. God has a promised land for your life. God has a promised land for your family. God has a promised land for you. God is calling you to grow in him, to become more like him. And we're going to have to deal with some things before we get there. Maybe it's a habit in your life. Maybe it's a sin in your life. It's an attitude issue in your life. And we're going to come against these things. And we're going to say they're just too hard. They're just too difficult. Well, I'm just going to go back. Well, I don't like something, so I'm just going to leave. 
Maybe you're in a relationship and you come to an impasse. Instead of dealing through and impressing through something in your own heart, you just give up on the relationship. Or you give up on your church. You say, I'm leaving. I'm going to another church. That's very possible that it's happening even today. But in order for you to get to where God wants you to get to, you're going to have to push through some things. You're going to have to press on. And the key to overcoming victorious life, which we all love, we all want to be like Braveheart and be like, come on, freedom. We all want to live that life that matters. We want to live that life that we can lead a nation to overcome the oppression of the enemy. We all want that. Here's the key. It's a life of prayer. Also, it's very interesting about James is when they buried James, many scholars have found that there was, they found some records that they found his knees were like camel's knees. They were like camel's knees because he was a man of prayer. His knees were calloused because he was praying and calling out to God. So Joshua's down in the army, or down in the valley. He's fighting. Moses is praying for him. And they prop his arms up, and the army becomes victorious. My question is this. Where was the battle taking place? Was it in the valley, or was it in the prayer? It was actually in the prayer. This is where the victory was won. And many of you are facing armies. You're facing difficulties. You're facing diagnosis from doctors. You're facing things that you're thinking, Jason, I don't know how I can do this. You're trying to find a practical solution, which you should be. But God's saying, ask me, believe me, and pray. And those who do not pray, those who do not have or do not ask, it's because it's a symptom of a defeated Christian. The third mark or problem of a defeated Christian is this, that we do not receive. James 4.3 says this, when you ask, you do not receive. So it, it's an issue that you don't have. It's an issue that you don't ask. But James is talking about asking but not receiving. Why are they not receiving? Have you ever wondered, why am I not receiving? Now, I'm not saying God is just always this, this genie in the sky and this, this slot machine in the sky. Whatever we ask him, he just gives it to us. Listen, he would not be a good father if that was the case. Because the things we're asking for, maybe he doesn't want us to have right then or in that moment. Or he's got a better plan for us. Usually when you pray, they ask, the answer is either yes, no, or, or later. It's one of those three. But James says this in, four, in chapter 4, verse 3. He says this, because you ask with the wrong motives, that's why you're not receiving. Because what you're asking for, you want to receive it so you can spend it or use it for your own pleasures. You may be asking the right things, but what James is saying, you're asking with the wrong motives. You're wanting things selfishly. And some people's prayer lives are them praying for what they want, not praying for what God wants. We had this real special time, and we were in Israel, I think three weeks ago, I think is when it was, and we were at Shiloh, where the tabernacle sat, and it's where Hannah brought her son Samuel to the temple and dedicated them. It was a very special moment because those who had their children there, I, I asked the mothers to spend some time at Shiloh, 
praying and committing and dedicating their children to the Lord. And I challenge them, do not pray what you want. You pray what God wants. That may mean, we want to, mamas, you want to pray, Lord, keep my babies around me all the time. But you should follow that up, but not my will, but your will be done. And so they spent this powerful time praying for their children and dedicating them to the Lord. Wherever you want to take them, you take them. Wherever you want them to go, let them go. Praying not with our motives, but God, your motives. So I want to talk about the solution to a defeated Christian's life. Five keys to personal renewal. The first one is this. Seems obvious, but man, I struggle with this one a lot. And it's this, submission to God. The key here is you want to live a successful Christian overcoming life, there's a, the key is to have submission to God. Verse 7 says this, submit yourselves then to God. This word submission, it's a, it's a type of a military word that means this, that I understand where my rank is. And that God, you are God and I am not. And I'm so grateful for that. But we recognize that we have a commander-in-chief. We we recognize we have a general whose name is the Lord Jesus Christ. That when he says to do something, we follow him. When he says to jump, we say, "How, how high? We don't tell him what to do. He tells us what to do because we are submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ. And when James opens this letter in, in, in the beginning of verse 1 of chapter 1, he says that I am a slave to God and to the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, whatever God's will is for my life, I will do it. Whatever the word says, I will follow it. When you say, this, is this something that you can say in the morning when you wake up and you engage with God? Would you say this is your, your attitude in the morning? Lord, I want to do exactly what you say. God, I'll do whatever you want me to do. We get up and, and, and we say, God, here I am before you. I'm submitting to you. Is it, do you wake up and say, good morning, Lord? Or do you wake up and say, good Lord, it's morning? I'm your slave and you are my master. I submit myself to you. This is the key that James is talking about. And most people think of determining the will of God for our lives as in the big things. What direction do I go? What school do I go to? What job do I take? Who do I marry? Does God want me to be married? Hey, those are the big things. And then once, we, once we deal with the big things and we forget that God is the God of details, he wants to be involved in every area of your life, of your heart. When you wake up in the morning, God, what do you want me to do today? Listen, God knows how many hairs you have on your head. Or how many hairs you don't have on your head. He knows it. He has them numbered. Why? Because he's the God of details. He cares about you. He cares about everything that you're engaged in and doing every day. He just wants you to ask him about it. And then submit to what his will is for you. The best place to start doing life with God is to do it with God in the small moments of your life. The everyday little things. Determining the will of God. I heard this old southern preacher say this one time, which I, I get a lot of my sayings from them because I grew up on them. He said this, God's will is what you would choose for yourself if you had enough sense to choose it. We would choose it. 
So many times we think God's will is something that we're not going to like. It's distasteful. It's so hard. And, but the reality is God, God's will for your life is incredible. It's because he wants the best for your life. And so the first step to internal renewal, revival, awakening is living out the life of submission to God. Father, I choose your will in advance for the rest of my life. Are you willing to say to God, yes, now tell me what you want me to do. That you would, that you would slide across the table to him the contract for your life, and you, and, 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 or he slides it to you and you just sign it, and he says, I'll fill in the rest later. This is the key to a life of revival and awakening. Doing things that you think, my gosh, I don't know if I can do this. But God says, I want you to do it. Move forward. The second one is the key to revival in your life is resistance towards Satan. Resistance towards Satan. Verse 7 says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. If you can, if you can think to yourself, you know, I, I, don't, I don't really... I don't really feel resistance in my life. I don't really feel temptation. I don't really feel emotional struggle. I don't really feel the attack of the enemy. I don't ever really have, have any struggles. I, I, would, I would really, I would challenge you to, to even ask you, are you doing anything for God? Are you pressing forward in areas of your life? Are you, are you leading your family? Are you guiding your heart to be submitted to God more? More effectively. The enemy is real. The enemy is absolutely real. But the Bible is very clear that we can resist him. And when he does, he will flee from you. Not every struggle is from the enemy. But many struggles are from the enemy. The devil's not going to stir up your nest if you're really comfortable and you're a neutral. The scripture is so clear that the devil will push on you. He will tempt you. He will distract you. He will attack you. But we have the power through the power of Jesus Christ that we can resist anything that he brings our way. It's important to understand the Bible teaches things about the enemy. The first one is this, that the devil is actually real. Some people think he's not real. He's not out to get us. But he actually is real. And there can be a misunderstanding where people about the devil, can have the Star Wars theology that there's this force. And so the, 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 uh, the good side, the, the good side of the force is God, and the dark side of the force is, is the devil. And they're always trying to battle it out. And whoever tricks each other the most is the one that's going to win. Here's the reality. Our God reigns supreme. He's not subject to the enemy. You, you, are, you are not at the mercy of the attacks of the enemy against your life. You're not there. Because God is the ruler of your life. That's why it's important we submit to him and we resist the devil. And so for us, as we're battling the enemy, we need to understand a couple things about him. One, the enemy is not God. He cannot be everywhere. He does not know everything. And he's not all powerful. Only God can be everywhere at once, knows everything, and is all powerful. You need to understand that. Yes, he can get us off course in our life. He can tempt us. He can try to get you to go down this road or that road. But the reality is he has no authority over God. And if you are in Christ and submitted to Christ, he has no authority over your life. 
And we can resist him, resist the forces of darkness. That's what James is telling these people in the church. He's saying resist the devil and he has to flee from you. And there are people that probably overestimate who, who Satan is. They overestimate the fact that he, is, that, that he can transform things. And, oh, my gosh, you're talking about the devil in church. And if you talk about him, he'll, he'll do something. I don't give a rip what he does. Because my God who lives in me is greater than he that lives in the world. And so for us to understand we are fighting in a battle. And we have to resist the enemy. And we're fighting against a philosophy that in the world that Satan is, is turning and changing and transforming. He's trying to influence our philosophy and our godly understanding of truth. I've stood with people who, who were followers of Jesus. I've sat with students who were in my youth ministry 13 years ago who were on fire for God. They loved God. But, and they still say they love, they love Jesus, which, which they may. But the reality is they are living their lives in a way that is contrary to Scripture. They will actually argue things in the Bible that say, well, that's really not what that means. How does something say the opposite of what it says? And I've seen them. They've been influenced by the philosophy of the world and universities where they like to hold on to the reality of knowing God. But they also want to hold on to, to this feeling in the world that everything is okay as long as there's love there. And it's wrong. And we have to resist those things to protect our mind. 1 John 4.4 4 says this. You dear children are from God and have overcome them. Meaning the, the darkness of the world. Because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. How many can say amen to that? The third key to personal renewal is this. Nearness to God. But the key to having nearness to God is this idea of confession. James says in verse 8, he says this, come near to God and he will come near to you. I want to ask you a couple questions this morning. Do you have a sense that God is close to you? Do you feel this morning that God's close or that he's far off? Maybe you remember in a time that he was closer and, and now you, you, you just can't seem to sense him anymore. When you pray, do you feel like God is light years away? Do you feel like he's really right there with you. There's something that's very important. If you feel like God is far away, I believe Scripture teaches it's not because God has moved. It's because there's something in our lives that we've allowed to come in and to cause the distance. It's kind of like the husband and wife that They've, they were older in their years. They've been married for many, many years, and they, they loved going on, on drives together. And, and so one day, they were, they were driving, and the wife starts to complain a bit about the time when, when they would drive together that the wife would always sit right next to them. She said, you know, we used to sit next to each other. When we were dating, we used, but you couldn't separate. You, you couldn't put a piece of paper between us. And now, look, we're not, in, we're not even sitting next to each other. And the man who was driving says, well, I didn't move an inch. <laughs> we can sometimes feel that way towards God. We remember a time when we were closer. and We remember a time when, when we, were, we felt tight with him. And we're upset, and we think it's God that's not doing this. It's God that's not close anymore. And God says this, I, I haven't moved an inch. 
The only thing that can drive a wedge between you and God is willful sin. But that actually doesn't drive a wedge of distance. It drives a wedge of perception. Because when you willfully sin, sin dulls our perception that God's actually with us. Because he said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. James says, if you want to draw near to God, then draw near to him. And he will draw near to you because he hasn't moved an inch. Then he continues on how to do this. He moves to the verse 8. He says this, wash your hands, you sinners. So this is an act of sin. And then he goes, and purify your hearts, you double-minded people. Deal with the sin in your life, James is talking about. Everybody still doing okay this morning? All right. How many are thankful for the book of James? Okay. All right. Good. Good. You're like, oh, gosh, I'm exhausted. I'm telling you. God's doing something in our midst today. James is saying, deal, deal with your sin in your life. James says, if you want a relationship with God, then put your sin under the blood of Jesus, confess it, and run to him. It's not, it's not possible to live a perfect life. But it is possible to live a clean life. And a, and a life that's constantly confessing and giving more and more of your life to the Lord. And this second half of this verse that talks about the attitude of sin. So there's the act of sin, then the attitude about your hearts and the double-mindedness. This is the attitude, and sin always starts with an attitude that leads to an action. You've never done something that you didn't first think about doing. This double-minded means something that you're, that, that you're loving God, but you're also loving the world in some of its areas. This whole idea of confessing your sin just means to agree with God, to say that the same thing about your sin is what God says about it. And here's the key. I want you to hear this this morning because I struggled with this as a young man growing up. When you sin, you do not lose your salvation. That maybe set some of you free today. Because you sin and you feel like, I'm not saved anymore. When you sin, you do not lose your salvation. Scripture is clear regarding your security as a believer. So then, all right, then, then why why do we need to confess? I'll tell you why. To, To maintain your nearness and relationship and fellowship with God. I tell you, for Cheryl and I, my wife and I, there are times when we would get in a disagreement. There are times that, that I'm, I'm going to say something that's going to hurt her. And she's going to say something that's going to hurt me. But rarely she does it. It's mostly my fault. Now, does every time I'm hurt with her, our, our, our relationship or our fellowship is, is not the way it used to be, does that mean we're not married anymore? Does that mean that every time we, we get in a, an argument or, or disagreement or, or something happens in our marriage that, that you know, we're like, ah, oh, we're, 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 there's a friction there? Does that mean after we, we reconcile, we got to go get married again? No. It's called a relationship. <laughs> you work through it. You deal with it. There's nothing more miserable than to not be in the closeness of a relationship that you know is possible. It is the same way with God. Once you taste the goodness of God, then nothing else will do than the closeness of a relationship with God. That's why we have to confess. And when you confess, when, there is, when, when you repent, it restores the standard of the relationship. It restores the standard that you can slide right next to God, right where you were when you went on your drives with him. Because that's where you were. He didn't move an inch, but you said, God, I'm sorry. He said, well, get over here. 
I was wondering when you were going to come back. How you been? For the soul to be well, it needs to be with God. And so when's the best time to confess your sins? I'll tell you when it is. The moment that it happens. Keep, your, keep short accounts with God. The best way to overcome sin, this is, this is the key to this, to this point, is not to focus on not sinning. Man, if you focus on not sinning, you are, you, are putting, you are putting not sinning above the grace of God. You're putting your effort above what God has purchased for you. But focus your heart on a relationship and fellowship with God. Your fellowship with him, walking with him, looking for him in your everyday life, reading the word on a regular systematic basis, praying and calling out to him. And the fourth key to spiritual growth is this, brokenness over sin. This is what James is dealing with the church. It's very important. He says this in verse 9 in the context of sin. He says this, grieve, mourn, and wail. You're thinking, gee whiz, Jason, what a great morning. You want me to grieve, mourn, and wail. James has said when it comes to sin, you need to change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. James is talking about this in this context of confessing your sin, grieving over your sin. This is all I'm saying this morning. I believe what God's saying to you is that if you want a personal revival and renewal in your life, you have to come to the place where you are broken over your sin. It's impossible to confess something that you don't think is wrong. It's impossible to get forgiveness for something that you don't think you need forgiveness from. As your pastor, I want you to live a victorious Christian life. I don't want you to be defeated. I don't want you to lay your head down at night and have all these regrets in your life. I don't want you to, to try to quiet and dull the pain of sin by other substances because the enemy is, is keeping you from God or your decisions are keeping you from God. I just want you to confess and say, Lord, I'm broken over my sin. I'm grieving over my sin. And when you see God and who he is and his holiness, you will be able to see the sin and be broken over it. It happened to, to Isaiah. This very thing happened to Isaiah. Isaiah 6, he said, I saw the Lord. He is high and exalted. He is holy. He's sitting on the throne, and the train of his robe fills the temple. Once he saw that, his immediate response was, woe to me. I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. He became broken over. This is a prophet of the Lord God. And he recognized the sin in his life. Unclean lips. 
James is saying before you come to a place of renewal and revival, you've got to come to a place of brokenness over sin. And the last key of personal revival, awakening, and renewal is humility before God. James says this, to all of us in this room, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. In God's economy, the way up is down. And the way down is actually up. If you want God to exalt you, if you want God to, if you want a personal awakening and revival in your spirit and in your heart, then humble yourself. There are people here today, you're hearing these words, and, and inside of you, your heart is on fire. You're saying, I want more of God. I want to be transformed of God. And God speak, He's dealing with you right now. And you're going to embrace these things and you're going to apply them in your life and God's going to do something in you. And here's the deal with humility. True humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's not beating yourself. I'm terrible. I'm terrible. No, it's thinking of yourself less. That's what humility is. It's thinking of God's will first, not yours. It's thinking of, of, of your, your fellow family member in this church first before yours. For you say, well, I don't like that. That's the question. Why are we doing that? Are we doing that to serve someone else? Are you concerned because it's not serving you? Are you concerned? Are you happy because it's serving someone else? True humility is being able to receive criticism just as graciously as you can receive compliments. Humility doesn't come by trying harder. It just comes by being honest with God and being honest with yourself. And it's these five simple keys that can bring a revival and a renewal in your heart. I think every person in this room would say, you know what, Jason? I want more of God in my life. I want more of Him. I want, I want to meet Him first thing in the morning and Meet him last thing at night. I want what the psalmist says, that even in my sleep he counsels me. I, I, I want to I understand what it means when Jesus said, I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. I want to always have an awareness of his presence in my life. And my friends, if we as a church make this radical decision to follow these five keys with James, we ain't seen nothing yet. Because we'll begin to see the, the tangible presence of God increase in a greater way. We'll begin to see God transforming our hearts and our lives. We'll begin to see reconciliation with ourselves and the community. We'll begin to see the power and the gifts of the Holy Spirit flowing in us and through us. We'll begin to see the power. We'll begin to see people being healed when they're prayed for. We'll begin to see people being set free and delivered from, from addiction, from demonic spirits. If we make a decision... At Faith Bible Chapel, that we want a renewal in our family and in our own lives, everything will change. But God says, come closer, and I'll come closer to you. We hope that this message has spoken something personal to you. If you would like more information about our church family or service times, please call us at 303-424-2121 
or visit us at our website, www.fbci.org. Faith Bible Chapel currently meets in our Family Worship Center, located on the corner of 62nd Avenue and Ward Road.